Yeah, Father, thanks for, uh, again, that you've spoken, uh, Mark read to us. Uh, thanks that you do show us your son. Please do uh, open our eyes to see him more and more clearly, uh, to see more and more clearly who he is, but and to see more and more clearly what he's did for us, uh, the goodness of what he has accomplished in him. Amen. I keep commenting that Mark tells us what we'd have seen and heard if we'd been there to see and hear it. Uh, but he also shows us what the eyewitnesses didn't see. He got what they saw, but what they didn't see. Uh, the, he shows us the facts of what happened. But the eyewitnesses miss the significance of what they saw. That's why way, way back when we started this series in Mark's Gospel, I said you would see Jesus more clearly by reading Mark's Gospel than you would have seen him if you had been there to see and hear what happened. Nowhere is that more obvious than in these last chapters. So, so what does Mark want us to see that Jesus' enemies and allies missed at the time? What does, Jesus, what does Mark want us to see that Jesus' enemies and allies missed at the time? Well, I'll show you in a couple of minutes, but first let's look at how Mark ends. We stop reading at chapter 16, verse 8. That's because that's where Mark stopped. It's a sudden ending. As Ronnie finished, you're kind of thinking, isn't there more? And yeah, there's more on the page, but... Yeah, it feels incomplete. So incomplete that actually many of the ancient copies of what Mark wrote made a stab at finishing it. Uh, that's why we have two options. There's actually the option under the heading. There's also a footnote with another briefer option from verse 9 onwards. Main text footnote. Two options. But we're effectively sure that Mark wrote neither of those. Uh, because the earliest, many of the earliest documents don't include them. Uh, there are actually some early, early documents that set that note that they're about to include a bit that isn't in most of the early documents. Um, that's, that's even among the Greek old, the old Greek copies. Uh, there's a shift in the style of writing in verses nine to twenty compared to the rest of Mark, uh, and it's easier to think why a scribe would get to verse eight and think, "Hey, I know some stuff that I've read and look. How about I just include that here?" it's easier to think of that happening than to think, oh, that's a good place to stop. I'll go off and I'll go off and do something else. Verse eight is where Mark finished. But with Mark with verse eight at the end, it can feel like Mark's biography of Jesus ends with uncertainty. An empty tomb, a man saying that Jesus is alive, sending witnesses to tell Peter and the other disciples. And then those women so full of fear that they say nothing to anyone. Roll credits. It's like a movie where you get to the end and the credits arrive and you think, hey, hold on, there are so many open story loops. I don't know what happened next. I want to know what happens next in the story. We're left thinking about what happened next. But I think that's the point. It's probably the point of those movies. It's certainly the point of what Mark is doing. He's getting us thinking about what happened next. So the ending is sudden but not uncertain. What happened next isn't exactly a mystery. 
Uh, the first readers knew, uh, <laughs> the first readers weren't wondering what happened. They know it didn't end ultimately in silence because actually they're part of the story. The gospel came to them. The silence didn't last. We know the silence didn't last because the message has come to us. We know what happened. But there's another reason why the ending is sudden, not uncertain. We know what's next because Jesus has said what's next. We've heard Jesus say what's next. I think Mark deliberately gets us thinking that way. So when we get to verse 6 and we're told that Jesus is risen, we're thinking, oh yeah, he said he would be raised. Verse 7, the the messenger says uh, Jesus is going to Galilee where the disciples will see him just as he told them. It's a reminder. We know what comes next because Jesus has said what comes next. Actually, I think we actually know what's already happened. We understand what's already happened because Jesus said what would happen. He explained his death and his resurrection in advance. He said what must happen. And he said what must happen next. That's why we can see what Jesus' enemies and allies failed to see. Even the eyewitnesses failed to see. In these final chapters, Mark tells us what we'd have seen and heard if we had been there. He's chosen these things to mention, so we'll see the significance that those who were there failed to see. We're back in the first chapters. Uh, we kept hearing Jesus uh, teach and speak as if everyone and everything answers to him. Uh, people were surprised at the authority he assumed as he taught. Uh, they were shocked at the authority he assumed when he said, your sons are forgiven, sorry, your sins are forgiven. People were amazed at the authority he demonstrated when he commanded wind and sea and demons and disease and death, and it was so. We're used to seeing Jesus speak, and it is so. Now, it took the disciples a while to come to terms with who Jesus is, but eventually they began to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's promised king. Now, in chapter 8, they objected when the one that with all authority began to speak about his death. But Jesus identified his, <laughs> the first kingly act he spoke about was that he would suffer, that he'd be rejected, that he'd die and rise The king must die. Uh, When Mark describes Jesus' death, he wants us to see that it's true. That Jesus died as king. Uh, For first century readers, uh, seeing how Jesus died as a common criminal, criminal, that was proof enough that he was a nobody. Mark shows us that actually how Jesus died is Jesus coming to his throne. In the trials and crucifixions, Mark goes out of his way to quote people who name Jesus as Christ or who call Jesus king. Ironically, most of them, they they say the words because they're sure he is not Christ and he is not king. But it's reminding us of what Jesus has claimed, of what Mark has claimed. You may or may not want to flick, but um, I'm going to run through a couple of times. Chapter 14, verse 61 
uh, the high priest asks, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Chapter 15, verse 2, the Roman governor Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Then verse 9, he offers to the crowd, he offers to release the king of the Jews. The crowd asks for Barabbas, Pilate, verse 12, Pilate asks, what shall, I, what shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? They cry, crucify him. Pilate says, what evil has he done? They continue to insist, crucify him. And then the innocent king, who has done no evil, is handed over to be crucified. Verse 17, the executioner soldiers, they, they dress Jesus in royal robes, purple cloak, crown of thorns, mock kingship. They salute him, kill king of the Jews. They beat him, they spit on him, they kneel in mock respect. Verse 24, they crucify him. Verse 26, the sign about why he's crucified reads, the king of the Jews. The chief priests, the scribes, they mock him. Verse 32, let this Christ, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So many times, over and over and over, we hear people speak about Jesus as king of the Jews, as Christ. Chief priests, pilots, soldiers, scribes, they're all convinced that Jesus isn't Christ, that Jesus isn't king, but their words are true. Jesus is sentenced to death. He breathes his last as king. The Roman officer who supervises his gruesome death, he sees him breathe his last and says, the same words Mark used in his first sentence when he called Jesus Christ the Son of God. The same words God in heaven said about Jesus at his baptism, at his transfiguration. The man who died is the Son of God. The centurion's words, the mocking in his trial and on the cross, say that his cross is his coronation. Jesus died as king, just as he said. He said he would die to save. So verse, chapter 10, verse 45, where he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That spot where he answers our, our question, what's going to happen if, we, if no one can give anything in exchange for their soul? Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. His death pays our ransom. His death gives us freedom. Mark helps us see the price that Jesus paid. Chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus quotes God in heaven saying, I will strike the shepherd. And we see the enormity of God in heaven striking the shepherd as the one who he had over and over assured that he was his beloved son. The one who was unshakable and unstoppable and undauntable is daunted by his death. Chapter 14, verse 33, he's greatly distressed. He's troubled. He's so full of sorrow, he feels like he's dying. Plagued by what's next, he prays in desperation, Father, remove this cup from me. The cup he sees is the cup of God's wrath. It's an Old Testament picture of well-deserved judgments. 
Jesus sees the cup we deserve to have waiting for us. But it's waiting for him. He dreads it. He asks to be spared it. But in obedience to his father, he will drink it down. When he gets to it, Mark doesn't dwell on the details of the crucifixion. He just mentions where it happens and that it happened. Because the horror was this cup, the cup of wrath that Jesus drank. It's ironic when the, the mockers call Jesus Christ and King. Chapter 15, verse 31, it's doubly ironic when they say, He saved others, He cannot save Himself. By not saving Himself, He saves others. Our shepherd was struck in our place. He was forsaken as we deserve to be forsaken. Punished as we deserve to be punished. See, at one level, Jesus' Jesus' physical death was just another example of humanity's vicious imagination doing what humanity's vicious imagination can do and causing incredible physical pain. As he hung on the cross exhausted, it was much like anyone else who was crucified, hung on the cross exhausted, unable to do anything deliberate, struggling to take breath until he could not take another breath, pain filling him, thought near impossible. But the unseen pain, the pain of his father coming against him, that's what he dreaded. The pain he experienced because his death saves. Because he carried our sin. Because he took our shame. Because he faced our curse. On the cross he took it all. He was punished as if he had done our dark acts. The father looks on his beloved son as if he was not pleased. He looked on Jesus as if he had done the sins it took men and women and children generations to do. Jesus, who warned about hell, experienced it for us. I find it so helpful to think about what Jesus faced. That the Father poured, on the, uh, poured out his just and fair and holy and passionate punishment. What he stored up, what was demanded by what we've done, he did to Jesus. He treated Jesus as if Jesus' life was full of anger and hate. As if he'd imprisoned the innocent, as if he'd abused his privilege. As if he had misused his power. His holy father treated him as if he had used others for his gain. As if he had let his lusts justify objectifying others. As if he'd used his strength against the weak. As if he enjoyed abuse. Took advantage of the vulnerable. 
until there was little left to throw away. The Father poured out his just and fair and holy and passionate anger. His fury against greed which robs others of what they need. Jokes that go too far. Decisions that leave others helpless. Acts that leave scars on God's good creation. Words which leave lifelong damage on humans made in his image. Jesus' beloved Father poured on him his just, fair, and passionate fury against our words, our acts, our attitudes, which distrust God's goodness, which reject his rule. He treated the one who lived to please him, the one who went to his own death in obedience to him, as if he had lived in thankless and deliberate rebellion. Jesus died to save. I mean, I'm going to give you some sense of what it costs. It's not, it's not rich man's charity, kind of spare change given that costs nothing. It's love giving all. The beloved son becoming the cursed son. On the cross, the son saw his father's face full of anger and vengeance that we deserve, but directed at him. It was their plan. The father and son agreed. In their love, they agreed. But it was dreadful. Jesus went where the trail of damage we leave. He went where, that, where it leads. To, went to guilt's dead end. For the ter- first time, in, in, in time, or for the first time in eternity, Jesus felt alone. Not experiencing the kindness of his father, only the crushing pain of death and judgment poured out by his father. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died as a ransom for many. He died to save just as he said. But his death was not the end. Uh, He is raised just as he said. He said he would rise on the third day. He said that he, the Son of Man, would be seated at the right hand of power. He's the Daniel chapter 7 Son of Man that we looked at last week. He's the one who comes to God and is given great power and authority and glory. So when we hear in chapter 16 that Jesus is raised, we know he isn't just raised to exist. He's raised to rule. He's raised to go to his Father's right hand. He returns to the glorious Father whose face again speaks love and delight. 
the Ancient of Days. God his Father gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. That's why even as Jesus knew himself abandoned by God, he chose those few words to say from Psalm 22. Uh, The words, why have you forsaken me? They come from a poem which moves from that cry of abandonment to the, the clear cry of confident assurance. That says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. It's a psalm which says God will vindicate his abandoned servants. It's not final. And when Jesus is raised, we see him vindicated. Shown to be true. The resurrection says that Jesus has paid the ransom in full. That Jesus did drain the cup full of wrath. He drained it dry. That he has defeated death. That he is king. His his eternal, uh, all-encompassing, all-including, universal, unending rule has begun. We see it when he's raised. Jesus is now seated at God's right hand. And every human, uh, each human, you and I, we, are under his authority and rule. Everything is under his authority and rule, which means us too. Jesus is raised just as he said. So now the gospel must be preached and believed just as he said. The time of enduring opposition, of avoiding false guides, of speaking his gospel, the time that we thought about from chapter 13, it's begun with his resurrection. Jesus' message must go to all nations. We kind of expect to see, but Mark finishes with nothing said to anyone. He does that to keep us thinking. He does that to invite us into the story. We're left to think about what we'll do with what we've heard. How we'll respond to King Jesus who died to save and is raised to rule. What does Mark want us to see that Jesus' enemies and allies missed at the time? Well, he wants us to see who Jesus is. He wants us to see what he did. He wants us to see why it matters. Jesus' enemies and allies, they they all seem to miss the significance at the time. We can see Jesus more clearly than those eyewitnesses saw him. Because Mark has preached the gospel to us. He shows us Jesus as Lord and Christ, as the one with all authority who died to save and who lives to rule. In chapter 1, we heard Jesus say, repent and believe in the gospel and the good news. It's clear, having got to the end of Mark, what he means. It's clear why it matters. None of us can ransom our own lives. All of us are under his authority. He'll punish rebels. And he'll bring his people home. Here are his people. His people are the ones who trust him as king who died to save and who lives to rule. 
His people are the ones who trust him as the king who died to save and who lives to rule. We rely on him as rescuer. We submit to him as ruler. (laughs) That's the call. It's a call on me. It's a call on you. To treat Jesus like that. To follow Jesus is to trust him as the one who paid the debts of judgment you owed. To trust Jesus as the one who drank the cup of judgment you deserve to drink. It's trusting him to forgive you. And you can trust him. You can let your guilt go. You can be confident that you're safe from judgment. More than that. Protected, but not just protected. Loved. Loved and accepted by God who could have judged you and spared his son. But in his love, judged his son that you might be spared. You see the son's love for you. You see the father's love for you. Trust the one who paid your debt and trust your savior as your ruler. Because that's who he is. Yeah, he is raised to rule. Uh, Just to be clear, this, this isn't something which makes Jesus king by the way we treat it. He is king. We ought to treat the king as king. And it's not an optional extra. You know, some people, they, they want to be forgiven, but they don't want to be obedience. Forgiveness, they can see how forgiveness would be good. Obedience, well, no, not so much. They don't think Jesus is good in the end. They think their choices in life will be better than trusting Jesus' teaching and commands. Better live life without Jesus interfering. But what better ruler could there be than the one who speaks and it is so, yet chose to go to hell and back to bring rescue? He knows what's best for his creatures. Love took him to the cross, which demonstrates that he wants what's best for his creatures. Trusting Jesus as king means obedience. It means a life which is more and more shaped by willing and determined and consistent obedience to Jesus, the one who died and is raised again. It sends us back into Mark to to do that work we'll do later in the year. I had to think more clearly about about what does Jesus say about our, our attitudes to money and marriage and religion and politics and truth and a whole bunch of other things. It sends us out into the rest of the scriptures, which Jesus himself teaches us to see as God's word spoken, telling us what we're to believe and trust and obey as followers of him. And both his command and our experience of the goodness of knowing him as Savior and Lord send us out to speak to a world that needs to hear his gospel. Sets us up to order our lives around seeing the people of our city and the nations meet Christ Jesus. To devote ourselves to seeing one another, keep in step with the Spirit and not lose hearts. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that your son is raised just as he said. That he died as king, that he died to save. 
that he endured your wrath and anger and judgment to bring rescue. Thank you that race he rules, that he's exalted to your right hand, welcomes as the one who's authority over all things, things in heaven and on earth. Thank you that he gives life and forgiveness to all who follow him. Please grip us with the goodness of that. In your son, amen.